open our Bibles tonight. We are in Jeremiah chapter 11 as we work our way through the prophecy of Jeremiah. And tonight we get into a, a very autobiographical portion of the book where Jeremiah really exposes some of his trials and difficulties. And, and we glean a lot from these two chapters tonight, Jeremiah chapter 11 and 12. In a Reader's Digest article, which was aimed at young, career-oriented people, it was suggested that a person finds the highest chances of success in life, and I quote, by engaging in work you most enjoy doing and which gives fullest expression to your abilities and personality. (laughs) If Jeremiah had heeded that nugget of advice... He would have never been a prophet. He would have never been God's mouthpiece. Jeremiah's work was anything but enjoyable. He preached a message of repentance to an obstinate people. God gave him the task of presiding over the judgment of his backslidden people, Judah. Jeremiah tried and he cried to reach these people. He sacrificed his freedoms, his position, His land, his possessions, his comfort. He even waived his right to a marriage and to a family. And yet his sacrifices won for him nothing but hostility and hardship. Prophet was not exactly that job where he enjoyed expressing himself. If Jeremiah had any sense of fulfillment, it came not from his work, but from God's word. In chapter 15, verse 16, he'll say, Your words were found, and I ate them, and your word was to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. Indeed, Jeremiah was a lone voice. He confronted and he stood alone against both political and priestly establishments. In his 40 years of ministry, he never won a single convert. I'm talking from a career-oriented perspective. Jeremiah was an utter, miserable failure. And yet God appraises success far differently than we do. Eternal success is measured not by terms of fulfillment, but in terms of faithfulness. Keep that in mind tonight as we study through Jeremiah chapters 11 and 12. Chapter 11, verse 1 begins, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Hear the words of this covenant. And speak to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And say to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Cursed is the man who does not obey the words of this covenant, which I command your fathers in the day I brought them out of the land of Egypt from the iron furnace, saying, Obey my voice and do according to all that I command you. So shall you be my people. And I will be your God, that I may establish the oath which I have sworn to your fathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey as it is this day. And I answered and said, so be it, Lord. Now remember the old covenant, the covenant that God made with Moses and with the nation Israel when he brought them out of Egypt consisted of three components. First was the law or the commandments. And there were different sorts. There were moral laws. There were some civil laws that governed life in this new land. And then there were some ceremonial laws that entered into their religious displays and observances. 
there was the law or the commandments. Second was the sacrificial system for when they broke the law. It's interesting that in the covenant, God made provision, gave them the commands, and then made provision from them disobeying those commands because he knew they would do so. And so when they broke the law, there was a sacrificial system to atone for their sin. There were the sacrifices themselves, the burnt offering and sin offering and trespass offering and so forth. Then there was the priest to offer those sacrifices. And then there was the temple in which to house them. And then the third part of the covenant was the blessings and the curses. For God would reward the nation's obedience with great blessing, but he would punish their rebellion and disobedience with curses. And understand, God preferred the blessings. He wanted to establish them in a land flowing with milk and honey. It was the people of Judah that insisted on the curses. You remember that verse, Psalm 78, verse 41. It says that the Jews limited the Holy One of Israel. We read that and we're stunned. How can anyone limit the unlimitable God? But literally, there were blessings God intended for His people that He had to scratch off because of their unbelief. His grace went to waste. Rather than the land flowing of milk and honey, Judah would taste the tart and the bitter. They had a choice, sweet or sour. Judah chose sour. They sinned and they rebelled, and God destined them to judgment. They would be deported back to Babylon. And Jeremiah's response to all of this was, so be it, Lord. So be it. Literally, amen. He didn't argue with God. He didn't try to talk God out of the judgment. He didn't even plead for God to stay the judgment of his people. He accepted it. So be it, Lord. You know, years ago, I was on my way to a, a Christmas parade in which my little girl Natalie was twirling her baton. I was late to the parade because I got a speeding ticket, a cop with a radar gun. Can you believe it? When he pulled me over, I was so remorseful. I was guilty. Officer, I'm so sorry. I'll never speed again. All that the time that there was the hope that the officer might let me off or might mark down the ticket to a warning, the whole time that there was that hope out there, I was humble, and I was contrite, and I was remorseful. But when it was obvious that I was getting that citation, I got mad. I started thinking, wait a minute, here it is at Christmas, and this fine's going to take presents away from my kids. And all I wanted to do was to be a good dad and get to my little girl's parade on time. I just about gave that guy a piece of my mind. Oh, I'm so glad I kept it shut. Obviously, I wasn't really sorry for violating the law. I was just sorry I got caught. If I had been truly sorry, I would have accepted the consequences of my actions and paid my penalty without copying an attitude. And this is what Jeremiah is doing. He's showing a true attitude of repentance. Oh, I'm sure at first he pleaded with God for mercy. But when God issued the ticket... Jeremiah accepted it, and he prepared to endure its punishment. So be it, Lord. Jeremiah was an example of true repentance. 
He says, Then the Lord said to me, Proclaim all these words in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, saying, Hear the words of this covenant and do them. For I earnestly exhorted your fathers in the day I brought them up out of the land of Egypt until this day, rising early and exhorting, saying, Obey my voice. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear. But everyone followed the dictates of his evil heart. Therefore I will bring upon them all the words of this covenant, which I commanded them to do, but which they have not done. You see, their sin had blocked the blessings of God and had unlocked God's curses. The same curses contained in the law. Remember, in the early years of Jeremiah, the law of Moses had been lost. And yet a copy was rediscovered in the temple. It was brought to King Josiah, a contemporary of Jeremiah's. He ordered it to be read publicly. Josiah even made the leaders of the land promise to obey. In fact, we're told in 2 Chronicles 34, verse 32, and he, that is Josiah, made all who were in Jerusalem take their stand for the law. Josiah removed all the abominations from all the country and made all who were present in Israel diligently serve the Lord their God. All his days they did not depart from following the Lord. But there are two expressions here that shine a closer light on the situation. Notice first, Josiah made the people serve the Lord. Apparently their compliance wasn't voluntary. It wasn't born from love. He made them do it. And then they followed the Lord all his days, all the days of Josiah. That is, once Josiah died, they went right back to their wickedness. You know, it's been said, convert an enemy against his will, and he will be an enemy still. This is true spiritually. A conversion that's coerced is not a true conversion. Reminds me of the little boy who was jumping up and down on his mom's new furniture. She ordered, she said, son, sit down. He reluctantly complied. He was sitting there on the couch thinking. Finally, the little guy said, I might be sitting down on the outside, but I'm still jumping up and down on the inside. You can't legislate, you can't mandate a spiritual conversion. Pressuring a people to make a decision won't stick. The person has to willingly come. They can't be pushed. And then verse 9, And the Lord said to me, A conspiracy has been found among the men of Judah and among the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They have turned back to the iniquities of their forefathers who refused to hear my words, and they have gone after other gods to serve them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant which I made with their fathers. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will surely bring calamity on them which they will not be able to escape. And though they cry out to me, I will not listen to them. Oh, the Bible says God is rich in mercy. It also says He is abundant in mercy. But His mercy is not limitless. There is an invisible, a spiritual line that once crossed, there's no going back. God's judgment becomes fixed. And though you cry out, He refuses to listen to your pleas. Apparently Judah had crossed that line. We're told, then the cities of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem will go 
and cry out to the gods to whom they offer incense, but they will not save them at all in the time of their trouble. Now, it's interesting, when trouble strikes, the Jews, like most people, they turn to God. They haven't given God the time of day for years, but they ask for His help. And when He refuses, rather than accept their trouble as His punishment and submit to God's judgment, what do they do? They run to other gods, false gods, for relief and for help. Their loyalty is short-lived. Once they see that God has no interest in relieving their pain, they leave Him as fast as they turn to Him. It's hypocrisy. Their devotion isn't genuine. It's superficial and self-serving. And such it was for the Jews there in Jerusalem. He says, For according to the number of your cities were your your gods, O Judah. And according to the number of the streets of Jerusalem, you have set up altars to that shameful thing, altars, to burn incense to Baal. This is why God judged the people, because they had followed after false gods, after the God of Baal. In fact, there was an idol for every city, Jeremiah says. Even an idol for every street in every city, he says. The people had given themselves over to false gods. It was Alexander Hamilton who once said, those who stand for nothing fall for anything. And isn't it true? Once Judah threw out the one true God, they were inundated with false gods. Verse 14, he says, So do not pray for this people, or lift up a cry or prayer for them, for I will not hear them in the time that they cry out to me because of their trouble. Now this is a sad moment when God says, Hey, Don't even pray. Three times in this book, Jeremiah will be told by God not to pray for the people. Jeremiah, don't even waste your breath. The people's fate has been fixed. Oh, this is a scary thing to hear from the mouth of God, to be beyond prayer. The good news is is that God has not said that about you and me. In fact, the New Testament says today is the day of salvation. The grace that's in Christ abounds to sinners who will turn from their sin. Romans 10 tells us that salvation is as near to us as the tip of our tongue. Paul says to the Romans, you don't have to climb into the heights to bring Christ down, nor do you have to plunge the depths to bring Christ up. No, He is near to you. He is as near to you as the tip of your tongue. For if you just confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God is raising from the dead, you will be saved. That's the good news that we live under. And then verse 15 tells us, What has my beloved to do in my house? Having done lewd deeds with many, and the holy flesh has passed from you. When you do evil, then you rejoice. God here speaks as a heartbroken lover who's been betrayed by his beloved. He aches. He watches his people rejoice in doing evil, even in his own house, and it breaks God's heart. The Lord called your name green olive tree, lovely and and of good fruit. With the noise of a great tumult, he has kindled fire on it, and its branches are broken. 
You remember in Romans 11, Paul uses this similar imagery to describe God's work in the world today. He compares Israel to the natural branch, which was cut off the vine so that the unnatural branch, the Gentiles, could be grafted in. Here he refers to Judah as a green olive tree, as a lovely and good fruit, but they're going to be burned. Their branches are going to be broken. For the Lord of hosts who planted you has pronounced doom against you for the evil of the house of Israel and of the house of Judah, which they have done against themselves to provoke me to anger in offering incense to Baal. How sad it had to have been to uproot what you've planted, to tear down what you've built. And yet this was what God was up against in His dealings and in His judgment of the idol-worshiping Jews in Jerusalem. Now remember, Jeremiah, he was a priest. And he was from the town of Anathoth, which was a little village about two and a half miles north of Jerusalem. Anathoth, remember, was a Levitical city. The tribe of Levi had been designated by God to serve in the temple. All of the priests came from the tribe of Levi. And thus God gave to this tribe certain cities scattered out among the 12 tribes, the other 11 tribes, to inhabit. Jeremiah grew up among these priests there in Anathoth. And they would go back and forth as they served in the temple in Jerusalem. And yet these were the men that Jeremiah angered when he was called by God to stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim, Amend your ways and your doings. Right there in their temple precincts, Jeremiah was called by God to thunder blistering judgments against the religious hierarchy of Jerusalem. We read these chapters, Jeremiah 7 through 10. We read them last week. Chapters that we call the temple discourses. And these were the judgments that alienated the Jews from Jeremiah. These were people he considered friends, even family. And yet after he stood in the temple, and after he railed on their sin and called on them to repent, they never forgave him. That one day in the temple made for Jeremiah lifetime enemies. And men from his own hometown, perhaps some of them even relatives, they plotted Jeremiah's assassination. It was some sort of ambush. At first, Jeremiah was oblivious to the danger, but God was faithful to uncover the plan, and he talks about it now in verse 18. Now the Lord gave me knowledge of it, and I know it, for he showed me their doings. But I was like a docile lamb brought to the slaughter, and I did not know that they had devised schemes against me, saying, let us destroy the tree with its fruit. And let us cut him off from the land of the living, that his name may be remembered no more. Now think about this for a moment. Imagine your family, even your friends, wanting to kill you for no other reason than speaking the words of God in the house of God. Isn't this what happened to Jesus when he returned to his hometown of Nazareth? Certain Jews wanted to kill him over the message that he had spoken to them. They pushed Jesus to the precipice there in Nazareth, and they wanted to throw him off the cliff. The Jews 
of Nazareth were too proud to admit that he was right and they were wrong, or that one of their own could actually be the Messiah. You know, we're told that even Jesus' half-brothers refused to believe in him. John 7, verse 5. How could the kid that they played with in the sandbox be the Messiah? How could the king of glory, you know, be the same kid that they grew up with? Why would God choose him and not us? What made him so special? In fact, in John 4, verse 44, the Lord responded to the rejection of his family and friends. Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. In essence, it's hard to get a hearing in your own hometown. And this is exactly what Jeremiah experienced. Have you noticed that perhaps some of your worst opposition arises from the people you know best? Hometown harassment is still a problem for followers of Jesus. Folks closest to us can be our fiercest enemies. And this is the kind of persecution that catches us off guard. Oh, we expect this from strangers. We hope our friends are going to support us and rejoice with us and be happy for us. When they don't, it becomes disturbing and defeating. We need to remember what Jesus told us. Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against his mo- her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes will be those of his own household. Jesus told us. He warned us. The gospel of Jesus is the most unifying force on earth when it is accepted and embraced. But it becomes the most divisive wedge when it's rejected. In Matthew 10, Jesus goes on to say, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who finds his life will lose it. And he who loses his life for my sake will find it. The hardest choice you'll ever have to make in discipleship is siding with God against your own spouse or against your own kids. Hey, in essence, coming to Christ may involve saying goodbye to some old friends and to some former associates. Who do you love? You see, allegiances change when we come to Jesus. Family gets redefined when we come to Jesus. Friends are now seen in a new light. In Luke chapter 8, verse 21, Jesus looked around at his followers At his followers, the people who loved him and were discipled by him, he looked around at his followers and he said to them, My mother and my brothers are these who hear the word of God and do it. Jesus had redefined family. Does it hurt to have people you once trusted turn on you? Oh, you better believe it does. Wow, does it hurt. But Jesus told us it would happen. There's an old adage, friends, there'll be no crowns in heaven for those who had no scars on earth. The hated on earth will be the honored in heaven. The chided on earth will be the cheered in heaven. More than anyone else, Jesus felt the pain of hometown rejection. This is why he tells us in Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, I'll read it to you from the Living Bible. 
It says, when you are reviled and persecuted and lied about because you are my followers, wonderful. Be happy about it. Be very glad. For a tremendous reward awaits you up in heaven. And the prophet Jeremiah experienced this kind of persecution more than most. In verse 20 he says, But O Lord of hosts, you who judge righteously, testing the mind and the heart, let me see your vengeance on them. For to you I have revealed my cause. Jeremiah appeals to God for his own defense. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the men of Anathoth who seek your life, saying, Do not prophesy in the name of the Lord, lest you die by our hand. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will punish them. The young men shall die by the sword. Their sons and their daughters shall die by famine. And there shall be no remnant of them, for I will bring catastrophe on the men of Anathoth, even the year of their punishment. God promises Jeremiah that there will be no survivors among his enemies. That when the Babylonians invade, judgment will fall hard on the city of Anathoth. That the men of Anathoth will not be spared because of their plot against him. Chapter 12 begins. Righteous are you, O Lord, when I plead with you. Yet let me talk with you about your judgments. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why are those happy who deal so treacherously? And you kind of giggle a little at Jeremiah's attempt at tact. He says, God, I know that you're righteous in all you do. But I got a few questions for you, Lord. Some stuff you do I don't understand. God, you don't always make sense. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why are those happy who deal so treacherously? He points to the age-old question that I'm sure you've asked. I've asked it. If God is just and fair and good, then why do the wicked prosper and his people end up being treated unfairly? Why does this happen? Why this contradiction? If God is in control... Why does he allow his followers to suffer and the wicked to get away with their crimes? The other day we were playing golf and Matt hit one over into the woods and it bounced back into the middle of the fairway. And he said, well, looks like I'm living right. As if living right entitles you to favorable breaks while unholy living leaves you in the rough. I wish life were that straightforward, but it's not. You see, this question in God, why do good things happen to bad people? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why, why is, does life sometimes not make sense? This kind of questioning, it's a reoccurring theme in the Old Testament. You find it in lots of places. It's what the book of Job is all about, in fact. Read Psalm 37. Then turn the numerals around and read Psalm 73. Both those two chapters the psalmist asks the same question, this question we're dealing with here. The same subject gets brought up in the book of Habakkuk. Jeremiah continues his complaint. He says, you have planted them. Yes, they have taken root. They grow. Yes, they bear fruit. Yet you are near in their mouth, but far from their mind. Jeremiah is speaking of the leaders of his day. 
And he's familiar. He's familiar with the Psalms. He's familiar with the Scripture. He's read Psalm 75, verse 7, that God puts down one and exalts another. He knows that promotion comes not from the east or west or north or south, but it comes from the Lord. And so, this only compounds his questioning. So, Lord, if you raise up some and you put down others, then why do wicked men stay in power? On the political landscape at the time, Jeremiah had seen some dramatic changes. The godly king Josiah had just died. He died in battle with the Egyptians. Jeremiah and all Jerusalem had come out to mourn his loss. They'd all come together at his funeral. His son Jehoahaz reigned just three months. He was deposed by the Egyptian pharaoh Necho and replaced by another son, Jehoiakim, who was a wicked man. And the reign of Jehoiakim undermined everything that his father had reformed. Idolatry returned to the land with a vengeance. Evil ran rampant. Wicked men were placed in power. Every idol that Josiah had torn down, Jehoiakim rebuilt. And most importantly for Jeremiah, the new king hated him. Jehoiakim hated Jeremiah. All the evil that Josiah had suppressed resurfaced under Jehoiakim. Obviously, this discouraged and confused Jeremiah. If God is on the throne, why is he allowing one this wicked king to come back into power? Why is God allowing one setback after another? The people in power might pay lip service to God, he says, but they have no real devotion to him. As Jeremiah puts it, God is near in their mouth, but he is very far from their hearts. Verse 3, But you, O Lord, know me. You have seen me. And you have tested my heart towards you. Now understand what's going on with Jeremiah. For, a, a, for the first half of his ministry, probably 18 years or so, he's had a godly friend on the throne, Josiah. And he has served in a favorable climate under Josiah's protection. But suddenly, all that's now gone. His circumstances have completely and suddenly changed. Now there's a wicked king on the throne who hates his guts. He stands in opposition to all that Jeremiah holds dear. The enemies that were always there but were suppressed by Josiah are now allowed to raise their ugly heads. The people who had plotted against him to kill him secretly now have government jobs. Now they've been put in places of power. You see, all that Jeremiah had labored to build for 18 years has now gone out the window. He now has nothing to show for his ministry but death threats and persecution. You've got to understand where he's at. And now he prays, Lord, I trust you, but what are you doing? I just don't understand. Have you ever prayed that prayer? Lord, what are you doing? How could this be? Jeremiah prays and he asks God to remove the obstacles, to get rid of the wicked men who oppose him. He says, pull them out like sheep for the slaughter and prepare them for the day of slaughter. How long will the land mourn and the herbs of every field wither? 
The beasts and birds are consumed for the wickedness of those who dwell there because they said he will not see our final end. In other words, his enemies have said, we'll outlive Jeremiah. Oh, he'll die before we do. And Jeremiah is now crying out to God, Lord, they mock you. They don't care about your laws. They refuse to take you seriously. God, how long will you spare their judgment? Why don't you pull them out for the slaughter? You know, there are days when I read the news and I see what's happening in America, a country that once respected Christian values and and encouraged their advancement. And I mourn over the evil that's now being promoted. It seems like America has had the same total reversal of circumstance that Jeremiah experienced. From Christian weddings to now homosexual marriages, from biblical masculinity to now feminism dominating the stage, from respect of life to abortion, from sobriety to the legalization of marijuana, from the sanctity of sex to now the absence of any morality at all, Josiah has been replaced with Jehoiakim right here in America. And I, like Jeremiah, I wonder why. I bet you do too. Why has God allowed this? Jeremiah felt a mixture of confusion and self-pity. The confusion was, why had God allowed this change of situation? And the self-pity... It had been so easy for him for so long. Why now the obstacles and the hurdles? Again, have you ever felt this way? You're trying to serve God. You're trying to do what's right. And nothing seems to work out the way you'd hoped. You wanted to bring healing to people, but now you're the one who's being hurt. You're frustrated. You're confused. This is not what you thought living for Jesus would be like. Why isn't it easier to do the right thing? Why doesn't life go smoother? How many times have we asked God to clear the runway so that we could take off, but we stay grounded? If you've ever felt this way, then take notice of how God responds to Jeremiah in verse 5. He says, If you have run with the footman, and they have wearied you, then how can you contend with horses? And if in the land of peace in which you trusted, they wearied you, then how will you do in the floodplain of the Jordan? For even your brothers, the house of your father, even they have dealt treacherously with you. Yes, they have called a multitude after you. Do not believe them, even though they speak smooth words to you. I have forsaken my house. I have left my heritage. I have given the dearly beloved of my soul into the hand of her enemies. Now, I'm certain that this is not what Jeremiah wanted to hear. This is not what we want to hear. This was a tough pill to swallow. For God glosses right over Jeremiah's original question. He doesn't even address why the wicked have prospered or when they'll be judged. What he does is tell Jeremiah is that it won't be before tougher times arrive. In other words, if you think your ministry is hard in the current climate, you ain't seen nothing yet. And Jeremiah needs to toughen up. 
I think we do too. Rather than a wartime, uh, rather than a peacetime mentality, Jeremiah needs to adopt a wartime mentality. The battle is just beginning, God tells him. He says, how can you run with the horseman if you can't even keep up with the footman? If you can't stay afloat in easy times, if petty problems tire you and threaten to sink your faith, then how are you going to handle the floodwaters? This is what God is telling him, and I think us. When the Jordan River was at normal levels, the wild animals, they stayed close to its banks in a steady supply of water. But when the Jordan flooded and water was more plentiful, then the wild animals were able to roam out into the neighborhoods. They became a danger to the residents. And God is asking Jeremiah, if you're afraid of the stray dog who wanders into your backyard, how are you going to handle it when the lion and the tiger suddenly appear prowling around next to the pool? In other words, if you're sulking and licking your wounds now, if you aren't getting up and keeping on now, how in the world are you going to make it when it really gets tough? Oh, rather than remove the obstacles, God wants Jeremiah to learn to deal with them. Jeremiah is upset that his family and friends have turned on him, but soon the entire nation will be invaded by an angry army. It's time for Jeremiah to buck up, to tighten his chin strap. Rather than easier, life is going to get harder and he needs to be ready. Oh, it would be nice if there was such a thing as hassle-free holiness. It would be nice if it was such a thing as messless ministry, but there's not. Serving God is a constant struggle. Jesus told us it would be. It's a battlefield, not a playground. There's an enemy out there named Satan, and he has his cronies with him. Sometimes his allies are your own friends and family, as Jeremiah found. And if you allow something as simple as an unkind word or a little squabble or a little mockery from someone, a little snicker, if you allow that to deflate your faith and intimidate you, how are you going to handle it when the enemies of Christianity take your possessions and maybe even throw you into jail? What if one day persecution against Christians secures some government muscle? I don't care who occupies 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. The Bible predicts that as we get closer to the end of the age, the spiritual and the moral climate are going to worsen, not get better. 2 Timothy chapter 3 tells us, But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. In other words, being a Christian isn't going to get easier, guys. It's going to get harder. Temptation isn't going to weaken. It's going to ramp up. Resistance to the gospel isn't going to lessen. It's going to intensify. And we need to be ready. You've heard the expression, when the going gets tough, 
tough get going. And that's what God is telling Jeremiah. Stop being a spiritual wimp. Rise up in the power of the Holy Spirit. Lay hold of your blessings in Christ. Walk by faith. Resist the devil. Count not your life dear to yourself. Be a living sacrifice for Jesus Christ. This is God's call to us tonight. Rather than remove the hassles that Jeremiah is facing, God wants him to accept the fact that there will always be hassles. That trials and difficulties are not going away. If anything, it's going to get worse. Life as well as ministry is really all about getting over one set of problems only to face another set of problems. Have you learned that yet? Living the Christian life in a fallen world is a swim against the current. It's an uphill run. The one constant is God is not removing the obstacles, but He's helping us deal with them. In his fictional classic, The Screwtape Letters, C.S. Lewis, he records a conversation with Screwtape, an experienced demon, with his apprentice, Wormwood. He says this, he says, Keep your subject, that is the Christian that he's trying to tempt, Keep your subject thinking that his trials will be over. So when they're not, he'll be continually disappointed. It's okay if he learns a lesson or two through his trials, just as long as you keep him thinking that one day all his trials will be gone. Whatever you do, never allow your subject to accept his trials as a permanent part of discipleship and something he must learn to endure. You see, the Christian life is the greatest life possible. To know God, to walk with God, to love God, to experience His eternal pleasures, to have your life count for eternity. It's a great life, but it is not and has never been an easy life. Lewis was a quotable fellow, by the way, and in another place he wrote this, I didn't go to religion to make me happy. I always knew a bottle of port would do that. If you want a religion to make you feel comfortable... I certainly don't recommend Christianity. He was right. The Christian life is strenuous, challenging. It's fraught with persecution and pitfalls. But in my opinion, it's the only life worth living. I can't leave a passage like this one without quoting my favorite poem. It's by Amy Carmichael. I've quoted it so many times. Bear with me as I quote it again. Hast thou no scar, no hidden scar, on foot or side or hand. I hear you sung as mighty in the land. I hear them hail your bright ascendant star. But have you no scar? Hast thou no wound? Yet I was wounded by the archers spent. They leaned me against a tree to die and rent. By ravenous, ravenous beasts that encompassed me I swooned. But you, have you no wound? No wound? No scar? Yes, as the master shall the servant be, and pierced are the feet that follow me. But yours are whole. Can he have followed far who has no wound, no scar? A Christian with no scars has been sitting on the sideline. It's time to get into the battle. Again, it's been said, when we get to heaven, God will look us over, not for medals or degrees, but for scars. The Moravian church has a logo that pictured an ox with a plow on one side and an altar on the other side. 
And underneath the caption read, ready for either. For the plow or service, or for the altar or sacrifice. And this should be every Christian's motto, service or sacrifice. God taught Jeremiah to be ready for both. Verse 8. He says, my heritage is to me like a lion in the forest. It cries out against me, therefore I have hated it. My heritage is to me like a speckled vulture. The vultures all around are against her. Come, assemble all the beasts of the field. Bring them to devour. You see, a speckled bird was the misfit of the flock. It looked different from the rest, and the other birds would turn on the speckled bird. And likewise, the Babylonians will turn on the Jews as a flock of birds turns on its speckled sibling. They'll pick on God's people until they're devoured. It's God's judgment. It's coming. Jeremiah's moping. He's groaning over the situation that he and his people face. But how does God feel about it? Verse 10. Many rulers have destroyed my vineyard. They have trodden my portion underfoot. They have made my pleasant portion a desolate wilderness. Oh, notice God says, many rulers have destroyed my vineyard. History is full of generals and despots who took aim at Jerusalem and who persecuted the Jews. Nebuchadnezzar of the Babylonians was only one. Pharaoh Necho of Egypt, Antiochus Epiphanes, the Greek ruler, Titus Vaspian and the Romans, Mohammed and his followers, the Turks later, on and on it goes. Verse 11 tells us, they have made it desolate. Desolate, it mourns to me. The whole land is made desolate because no one takes it to heart. They had heard God's word. The problem was they didn't take it to heart. And in essence, if you don't take it to heart, it's no good that you heard it. Thus judgment came and the land was made desolate because they did not take God's word to heart. You know, their their iPod was full of Bible studies. Amazing. All they had to do was go in and just hit a little app button and they had all these Bible studies available to them. They could go on the internet and access teaching all the time, 24-7. They could even stay home on Sunday and sip their coffee and watch it live stream. They had access to all of this teaching. Problem though, is they didn't take it to heart. He says, the plunderers have come on all the desolate heights in the wilderness. For the sword of the Lord shall devour from one end of the land to the other end of the land. No flesh shall have peace. They have sown wheat but reap thorns. They have put themselves to pain but do not profit. But be ashamed of your harvest because of the fierce anger of the Lord. Thus says the Lord against all my evil neighbors who touch the inheritance which I have caused my people Israel to inherit. Behold, I will pluck them out of their land and pluck out the house of Judah from among them. Three of Judah's regional neighbors, Ammon, Moab, and Edom, were also invaded by the Babylonians. They too were deported to Babylon. And here God warns them of this coming judgment. He says, Then it shall be, after I have plucked them out, that I will return and have compassion on them and bring them back, everyone to his heritage and everyone to his land. The Babylonian captivity lasted 70 years. And when Babylon was finally captured 
and conquered by the the Persian and King Cyrus in 536 B.C., Cyrus' first decree was to allow the Jews and these other nations that had been deported with them to return to their land. God did bring them back, just as he told Jeremiah. And apparently he brought back Judah's neighbors as well. God says of them, And it shall be if they will learn carefully the ways of my people, to swear by my name as the Lord lives, as they taught my people to swear by Baal, then they shall be established in the midst of my people. But if they do not obey, I will utterly pluck up and destroy that nation, says the Lord. Remember, Ammon and Moab and Edom, they were the chief exporters of idolatry into Israel, into Judah particularly. In fact, the evil Molech, we talked about the worship of Molech or the burning of, making of child sacrifices into the arms of the burning idol. Evil of Molech came from Moab. But when these nations return, God says, if they learn to trust in me, as the Jews learn to bow to their idols, then I'll save them and I'll integrate them among my people. But if they refuse, if they continue to serve their false gods, then I will reject them. It's an example to us Gentiles. It taught us that though the Jews were God's chosen people, they were not His only people. This is hope for us. that God has room in His heart for all people. All people who will turn to Him and repent and follow Him. Again, if they don't repent, if they continue to follow their false gods, then the true God will see to it that they're utterly destroyed. And there we have Jeremiah chapters 11 and 12.